Today's episode of the Book of Basketball podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network brought to you by World Central Kitchen. Their relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support, serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of our biggest cities like New York and LA. They're launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh, hot meals to hospitals and clinics fighting on the front lines while keeping local restaurants in business as well. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us and help keep your local restaurants alive. Go to theringer.com slash WCK to donate, please. Look, we're trying to raise $250,000 this month across all of our podcasts. Plus, I already donated another 100000 So if we can get to that two fifty, dollars uh, that will be three fifty dollars total from all of these Ringer podcasts. If you have the means, it's an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. The money goes directly to World Central Kitchen. It's a charitable donation. Once again, theringer.com slash WCK to find out more. And look, we are almost done with these redraftables here. We're doing the 2002 redraft coming up with Chris Ryan and Joe House. Doing 2003 with Chad Ford, probably on my feed. And then I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how badly you guys want more. Donate to theringer.com slash WCK. Help us out. Help people out. Help people on the front lines. Help the restaurants. Five bucks. That's like one fourth of a movie ticket back in the days when we go to movie theaters. Check that out. Check out our new podcast, The Wire, Way Down in the Hole, which is launching this week. You can subscribe right now on Spotify or Apple, wherever you get your pods. Van Lathan and Jamel Hill, we are dropping two on April 15th, Wednesday, probably when you're listening to this. And then we also have Flying Coach with Pete Carroll and Steve Kerr, which we launched on the Ringer NBA and Ringer NFL feeds. We launched the first podcast. We are launching a feed for it as well. So if you like those two guys, if you like to hear smart conversations about coaching, I would highly recommend that. And then uh, we started the Redraft the Bulls series uh, on the BS podcast on Sunday nights. With Priscilla, we're doing six classic MJ games over the next six Sundays on the BS podcast, which will probably end up sticking here at some point anyway. But if you wanted to watch those on YouTube, I think you can at this point. If you go to the Ringer YouTube channel, we're going to be putting all of those on YouTube as well. Coming up, a very exciting, very bizarre 2002 draft. Digging into it right now. My name is Bill Simmons. This is the Book of Basketball 2.0. All right, it's the 2002 redraftables with two of the 2002-ish people I know, Joe House and Chris Ryan. House, Chris and I just did a Basic Instinct re, uh, rewatchables with Mallory Rubin, and I don't know what was a bigger crime scene, Johnny Boz's uh, come stained sheets after, oh. Oh, after no. uh, he was murdered. Oh, no. Or, or what happened in this draft? It, this is, you have, <laughs> I wrote that uh, somebody threw a black cat on the stage 
and we never recovered. Some of the things that happened, the motorcycle accident that ruined Jay Williams' promising career, Yao Ming breaks down after eight years, Amari's knee breaks down, both knees, I guess, Dewan Wagner, his whole body breaks down, Drew Gooden's brain broke down, Carlos Boozer's hairline broke down, Quintel Woods' human decency, that broke down. And uh, Nick Tishkavili, I think he just broke down in general even before he got to the draft. Uh, House, what happened in 2002? How do we explain this to our, our grandkids? Well, here's how I'll be explaining it to my grandkids. 2002 happens to mark the year that none other than the Maryland Terrapins won the NCAA title. Now, I'm not going to go full SVP here, but I do feel like it would be appropriate at this juncture just to get a, a taste of the of the fight song. Maryland, we're all behind you. Raise <laughs> high the black and gold. For there is nothing half so glorious as to see our team victorious. We've got the team boys. We've got the steam boys. Keep on fighting. Don't give in. That wasn't a, this wasn't a taste. And Maryland will win. That was not a taste. That was, that was a whole full helping. Chris, what happened in 2002? Other than how singing the Maryland fight song 19 years later. Man, I, I just feel like I feel dirty review, re, revisiting this draft. There's so many like kind of sad stories, but there's also just like I was rereading your draft diary from that night. And honestly, I feel the same way as I did back when it happened, where you're just like, I feel like I've only seen like five or six of these guys. The guys I saw in college that I thought were good at best wound up being role players. You get a lot of guys who show up and play like 12, 13 years in the league as rotation dudes. But man... Just everybody chasing the next Dirk and winding up falling flat on their faces. Yeah, it was the transition draft between the goofy 2001 draft that we broke down in the last three draftables with uh, Zach Lowe and then 03 when there's a different rookie scale, salary cap, whole thing, LeBron and those guys, awesome draft class come in and then it starts to feel like the modern draft. This is still in two different camps. You have Amari Stoudemire as a high schooler. You have random foreign guys like Tish Kavili and Nene that we just had no idea if those guys are going to be good or not. The whole Yao Ming subplot, which I want to go into when uh, when we draft him. Um, but, you know, a lot of hype for Yao in in a way that really hadn't happened other than with Sabonis for, for foreign centers. And then the Jay Williams thing who... So our house and I we were like locked in on this draft. And the two things I think we both felt the strongest about Jay Williams was going to be an awesome pro. We were like all in on that. He was very Westbrookian. If you think about like uh, how we felt about Westbrook at UCLA and like maybe his first two OKC years, that was the same kind of athleticism uh, Jay Will had. And then uh, the Karan Butler falling a 10, we just liked him. Couldn't believe it when it was happening. He finally ended up uh, having a nice run with uh, House's Wizards, but um, well, you you were... do you remember you came to Washington and we watched the first two rounds of the NCAA tournament in 2002 here in Washington, and we watched Karan play, and they were in a close game against NC State, and he made a shot at the end to to clinch it for Connecticut, and we were like, yeah, man, this this dude, this is a real dude. Yeah, and for some reason, this was at the height of people just rolling the dice with top 10 picks. We were yeah. just like, Dewan Wagner, he spent a year in college. Uh, 
He's a Calipari guard with no position. made him leave Memphis, and people are like, let's yeah. go. What could go wrong here? Now, he did get hurt, obviously, or he had some yeah. health issues, but there was a lot of just, you know, Tishka Vili is is amazing because I, I forgot until I did the research for this draft, Denver had two top seven picks. The reason is they traded Antonio McDyess to get the Knicks pick, but they had five and seven in a draft that, the ninth pick was Amari Stoudemire and the 10th pick was Karam Butler. That's if you just kind of play it safe and take Karam Butler five and then Amari is your young guy you roll the dice with instead of Tish Kavili. They're, you know, their whole arc is different. Of course, Kiki Vandewey is the GM, so they missed the, all that thing. Uh, House, what do you remember? Because I wrote in my draft diary. This is in 2002. I wrote years from now. We will remember Yao Ming over Jay Williams the same way we remember Bowie over Jordan, Trailer for Nowitzki, Carroll for McHale and Parrish, Aguirre over Thomas, and every other great draft day blunder in NBA history. I stand by that. I still feel like we would be saying that if he doesn't get hurt. Am I crazy? I, I think you might be crazy. The thing that we have the benefit of understanding now uh, and honestly, the reason that I think it's still credible to make the argument for Yao as the number one overall pick is the the opportunity that Yao represented. He he basically ushered in a country with a billion plus people in directly into the uh, NBA bloodline, and that cannot be understated. You can't undervalue that. He was and remains an enormous hero in China and Houston all the way up until the unfortunate circumstances of this past uh, summer leading into the beginning of the season with Daryl Morey and his Hong Kong comment remain like the top uh, uh, most popular team in China. Yeah. So like Yao is the embodiment of an enormous, uh, you know, doubling of the NBA business and the, the NBA trajectory going like this. And so, like, if you're thinking about it from a business perspective, Yao still makes a lot of sense. And in that same way, House, that you're talking about the way in which Yao raised the ceiling on the business side of things and the economic side of things, this is really a draft where guys are fully high on upside. I mean, you make fun of it in your draft diary, Bill, but, like, the idea of this untapped potential rather than the easy layup it obviously just screws up multiple GMs in this draft. And this is still like a time when you could just be like an idiot and run an NBA team. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a good point. I think what I realized as I was doing the research, there was such a Sean Bradley hangover with Yao that that combined with just like, okay, this guy's going to come from China, play in America, all of, all of the possible pitfalls of just, you know, he doesn't speak English. How is he going to communicate with his team? Is everybody going to go out of their way to dunk on him? Shaq famously had a joke about how he couldn't wait for Yao to get into the league. He was going to dunk on him left and right. And I I really felt like there was potential for him to be the Chinese Sean Bradley. Now, he, he turned out to be a lot better than that. And I think even though his career was pretty short, they were successful with him. He had a good eight years. He was at his peak probably a 2010, 2011 guy. And I remember I went to his last great game because I went with Daryl in 2009 when uh, when they took the Rocket when they took the Lakers to seven, even though Yao was out of that series after the third game. If you go back and you go on YouTube, game one, 
in L.A. 2009, Yao like lays the smackdown on the Lakers. It, and he puts up, I think, 29 and 10 and just does a whole bunch of great stuff. And he was a problem. They didn't have the size to kind of stop him. I, I still don't feel like there's a world in which he's the best player on a finals team. Just because of the way basketball is played, it, they had to accommodate so much with him. He was slow. They had to wait for him. He's just clogging the lane nowadays. Like, Chris, what do you think of him in 2020? What happens? Oh, I mean, I, I don't think anybody takes a chance like that anymore. I mean, can first of all, like, you have to wonder with a bunch of guys in this draft where we are medically now in 2020 versus where we were back then. And what what sort of precautions could be taken? I mean, I feel like we've gotten enough experience now with like these big guys that as soon as you see some of the warning signs you would have seen with Yao, like what kind of miles did he have on his on his body coming from China anyway? Well, and then what was he putting on? I don't think teams fully realized that he was playing 12 months a year. Hey, right. I, I remember hearing that from Daryl and it was just that there was no way out. It was part of the deal. You get to play in the NBA during the summer, you'll be doing this. And, you know, he played eight years, but it really was probably like 13 when you add up the fact that he had no breaks at all. He was also one of those guys in person. It was a little painful watching him run. You know, House, you had your guy, uh, George Mirasan, who was the less less athletic version of this, but just watching them just go back and forth on the court, I don't want to say he was laboring, but it, it was almost kind of impressive to watch. Like, man, this guy's carrying a shitload of weight, bones, things are going all these different places. How's he even doing this? Um, House, did you ever think he could have made a finals team? Yeah, sure. I, I Okay. Um, you know, he, he was so skilled. His He had great So hands. efficient. And really yeah, efficient. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And his free throw shooting was outstanding. And, you know, he, um, in the low post, I thought had, had really solid, you know, footwork. Uh, but he, 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 he couldn't play at pace. That's true. Um, and that era definitely suited him. But I think he could have played on a championship team under the right circumstances in that era. He and T-Mac were awfully formidable. If they could have gotten a couple more pieces there, I mean, that Houston team could have done something. Yeah, also, it was when a you weird, go- weird time for the league is the only thing I wanted to add. It's just that the talent was low that year. So nobody had more than like five or six competent guys. So with this team, they were so stacked with the top two. It was always like they're grasping for straws with like the Rafer Alston type, just sort of bar- old Dikembe Mutombo. Anybody, any live body they could get to play 25 minutes. It was just harder. Yeah. Do you think that a lot of that stuff, I mean, right, coming out of 0102, Dirk's now scoring about 24 a game. He's obviously going to be a major figure in the NBA. Are teams looking around and thinking like Nanak Kristich and Jiri Welsh and, and Tiskavili, like these guys have that potential too? That definitely happened with Tiskavili because you have to, you have to put that in the context. When I was on Chad Ford's podcast, he he was saying how that was the first big miss he had. People were talking him up and there was that weird, who's the next Dirk run that people had. And in retrospect, just seems idiotic. Dirk ended up being one of the best, like 16, 17 players of all time. There wasn't going to be a next Dirk, but there was this two, three year stretch where there, you have that. You also have people know Manu's coming and 
Tony Parker is already looking like he might be something. So that O2 draft was the first time people were like, we're not missing on these foreign guys anymore. We're, well, they were, we're hitting these in the moment. We're not, they, these guys aren't falling to the 28th pick anymore. The teams were even, you know, we did the 99 draft together. Teams were taking a swing and, and missing what I think um, we looking back can conclude is like the foreign scouting was not great because right. we made fun of, of the Knicks for taking Freddie, Freddie Weiss. And that was very yeah. uh, deserved making fun of. And the same Radmanovich went and then AK 47 Kirilenko went much later in that 99 draft. And, and you know, what, why uh, was the scouting such that he wasn't picked in the place that Weiss was picked or that Redmanovich was picked? You know, and you, you, Bill, you, you always talk about like, we didn't know about Giannis. Like we just had like the little amount of tape that we had on him, but there's guys in this draft where we're talking about Slovenian security camera footage. And that's what we're basing (laughs) (laughs) franchise altering decisions on it. So Jay Williams sucked as a rookie. And he's basically nine and a half points a game, 4.7 assists, couldn't shoot. I I was still all in. How many years did he go to Duke? Was he one year at Duke? Oh, he's three years at Duke. Yeah. I was, was still... Uh, he was still one of Krzyzewski's to keep guys around. I was still all in. I remember he had kind of a legendary game against Jason Kidd. Do you guys remember this? I'm going to look this up as we're talking. He had, I think, he, I want to say he had a triple-double against Jason Kidd. Is that possible? I think Kidd's uh, much older. Oh, yeah. his seventh, The seventh game of his career against Jason Kidd, 26, 14, and 13. And that was like, oh, here he comes. But he, uh, it was just not a great rookie season. I still really believed in him. That team, though, was a train wreck because you had, um, you had, uh, Tyson Chandler and Eddie Curry. You had Marcus Pfizer. You had Eddie Robinson, who was the guy that I was telling, trying to get Jalen because Jalen ended up on that team. I was trying to get Jalen and tell Eddie Robinson stories for three years on Grantland and he wouldn't. But let's say there are some stories. Uh, <laughs> Jamal Crawford. Uh, it, it was just an absolute train wreck of a team. It was, it was basically like the team you would do if you were doing a star's comedy about a basketball team. You would have picked like this team. So that's who he got thrown onto. I don't feel like that was totally his fault. I I'm an idiot. It goes without saying I have a long standing reputation on this as being an idiot. That team is not terrible. That team is missing a point guard. You know what I mean? And so Jay, Jay Williams, you know, if he didn't want to be a motorcycle star there, it's still sensible to me. If they had like a, a, somebody that could um, put all those guys in the very best pos- their very best position. I mean, it's it's not in- incredible, uh, incredibly stupid um, well, for him with Jay- that group. Jalen's perception on that because I remember we talked about it. We might have even talked about it on a podcast. But that first year, Jay Williams comes in. He's hot shit. He's a guy from Duke, second pick in the draft. Um, thought he was going to be immediately a star. You go into the league back then, loaded a point guard. I mean, it, it was like an unusually deep, deep, deep point guard class where you're going against Steve Nash one night and then Jason Kidd and Chauncey Billups and Mike Bibby and White Chocolate. And you go on down the line, like everybody's competent or better. And I think it was like a humbling year for him. The, I still feel like athletically, 
I remember I saw him, I got to see him in person at least once. Um, he, he was one of the faster guys I've seen on a basketball court and, and was a little physical too. So I do think, I think it would have happened to him. There's a lot of point guards. Chauncey Billups is a good example of somebody who bounced around for multiple years. Yeah. It took a couple of years to, to get it together. So anyway, I'm not admitting defeat on, uh, on my, on my Jay Williams over Yao Ming thing. What do you remember about that Duke team guys? Cause that had, they had Boozer, they had Mike Dunleavy, they had Jay Williams. Duhon and, and Daniel Ewing. Yeah. And it was one, it was like shocking when they didn't win the title. Remember when houses, yeah. nobody had houses. Juan His Dixon, Terps. Lonnie Baxter team. Who else was on that team? <laughs> Steve Blake. Steve Blake. The guy on that Maryland team with the longest uh, NBA career. And the most viewed YouTube clip because he got in the fight, right? Who did he get in the fight with? Oh, yeah. That's a great point. Gilchrist? Uh, Gilchrist team? was on that team. That's who the fight was with. Ah, okay. You go and you find that YouTube clip and Gilchrist is getting super physical with him and Blake just pops them and they go. And it's, it's like a featherweight title match for a second. Uh, so that Duke team, I remember being really disappointed. I, I remember it, it had, it was a class that had signature guys like drew good. in college was like a signature guy. You go on down the oh, line. Yeah. Um, it wasn't this was like a year, there wasn't this talent. This is the year where I feel like I, I feel like this is where college basketball and NBA basketball almost become like separate galaxies where guys are just like the Dan Dickows and Juan Dixons and Karan Butlers who are, if you watch college ball, you're like, these guys are superstars. And then they get to the NBA and they're barely rotation players or they're role players or whatever. Dickow's a tough one for me. I still, I, I, I'd have to look. I still think there's a couple of, uh, of pieces of Dickow Incorporated stock sitting around in the back of my closet. <laughs> I remember the Celtics ended up with them at one point and both my dad and I were like, here we go. It's fucking on. <laughs> he, Did you say the same thing about Casey Jacobson? No. Um, <laughs> Dickow was, was really overmatched athletically and on defense might've been the worst defensive point guard the Celtics have ever had. So it was, it was rough. We also had, uh, we, we had the Amari subplot, which the high school thing had gone a couple different ways at this point. This one, there were a lot of red flags. There were some high school switches. There were some current concerns about his mom. And he just seemed like a really troubled, talented guy. And we went, had gone down that road the year before with Eddie Griffin. And it immediately went bad with Eddie Griffin. And then Amar, you go down the road again, by all accounts, a sweet guy, like Steve Nash loves him. Like they, I don't think anybody who's spent any time with him the last two decades would be like, that guy was a dick. He was bad. He was shaky. Um, turned out to be a great pick. And in retrospect, impossible to believe he goes ninth in this draft because you had to think, even if he's just playing high school, the athleticism must have been breathtaking even at age 17, 18, right? House, do we underrate Amari now? Because I feel like we do. I, You know, I forgot... Um how many uh, all NBA teams he made until we did the research for this, because the lingering memory for Amari, at least, at least to me is his last bright burst of um, real, you know, game changing kind of talent with the Knicks. And then what, while Mello was out and then Mello coming back and basically, you know, pushing um, Amari aside, uh, and Amari never physically, he, he, there was no way he was going to live up to that contract that the Knicks gave him. Yeah. Um, so 
you know, that's the lingering memory. And, and also, of course, you know, we never got to see that, that Suns team uh, reach its natural peak because Bobby Horry shoved Steve Nash into the, uh, into the scores table. Yeah. Yeah. Joe Johnson, that first year gets hurt. Second year, Amar is hurt. Third year, Horace shoves Nash into the table. And it's a three-year window. I would say the over-under for Suns titles should have been one. Yeah. And it went under. Uh, Chris, what did what did Amari mean to uh, early basketball blogging, internet, that whole world? The, there was the a early mid-2000s. There was a couple of pretty iconic guys in here. But Amari was just like sort of the introduction of that of that positionless basketball or the idea that like a guy who you think should just be standing on the block with his back to the basket two feet away and then boxing out for the rest of the game could actually be the the fulcrum of an offense in a, in a new kind of way, in a different kind of way. And it was just so intoxicating once you get to that 62-win Suns team a couple years later to watch him and, and, and Nash work. It was just breathtaking. Yeah, I remember that one playoffs with Marbury, I think 03. Against the uh, Spurs. And Marbury and Amari were going kind of, young Amari, kind of going toe-to-toe with that Spurs team that ended up winning the title. And I think that's when we knew this was a massive mistake. That, oh shit, if we did... This was one of those drafts where we knew pretty quickly, wow, if we did that draft again, it would would go a lot differently. Yeah, seriously. Um, I had it as a crapshoot rating. I had it as a 7 out of 10. Um couple couple moments from here from a from a memorable standpoint so the the Antonio McDice trade was Antonio McDice and the number 25th pick for Marcus Campy Mark Jackson the number 7th pick and I wrote four vertebrae to be named later um <laughs> the uh the Knicks fans were really upset this draft is in New York they're furious that Scott laid in the Knicks are in salary cap hell. This is the first stretch where it's like, Oh my God, the Knicks have completely fucked this up. Then they do this. They're training at the draft fire laden, fire laden, fire laden over and over again. And then they find out Nene is actually traded to the Knicks. They're interviewing Nene. They're still chaining fire laden. Like they're out. They're the most out they could be <laughs> on this Knicks team. And then, uh, and then Karan Butler slipping slip a 10. I wrote at the time, second best guy in the draft and freaking Riley gets him. It's Paul Pierce all over again. Um, how does this happen? I, I basically had a complete meltdown in the, in the column. But here's the thing. He falls to 10. And it's this weird what if tied into later where they're able to get Shaq because Karan Butler fa- falls to 10. And then Lamar Odom uh, ends up going to Miami because Bill Duffy, the agent, fucked up on Anthony Carter submitting his contract in time, creates this cap space, and Miami's able to sign Lamar Odom. So they go from like, you know, this 10th pick, it, it could have been like Yuri Welsh if the draft falls a little differently. And then a year later, they they shouldn't have got Lamar Odom. They did. Now you have these two trade pieces that they could trade for Shaq. So... And then the third piece of this, then Karan Butler ends up going to, to, to the Lakers. I, and, and they trade him for Kwame Brown house's guy. <laughs> and I don't know why the Lakers didn't just keep Karan Butler, but I guess we could talk about that later. Uh, 
from a comedy standpoint, let's just talk about Quintel Woods really quickly. What was it? It was dog abuse or pit bull? What, what was this thing, it was, Chris? I, I think he he fought dogs, yeah. Fought dogs. So we knew that going into the draft. And at that point, the Jailblazers jokes were like the the easiest layup of all time. It would have been like the overworked Twitter joke of the week on uh, the press box with Curtis and Shoemaker. Bob Whitsitt is just like challenge accepted. <laughs> so we're going to this draft of like, oh, the Blazers will take him. Yeah. He's going, he's going. And then he's on the, they're on the clock at 21. They fucking take him. So that, that was hilarious at the time. Um, when they, when they announced Yao as number of pick, he was in China. They cut to a live feed in China and Yao and his family celebrated and exchanged high fives. It's on the internet. It's very funny. Drew Gooden's suit was the worst suit anyone's ever worn in a draft. My exchange with my dad during the draft diary was, what do you think of that pick? And my dad just stared at Gooden. He goes, that suit has no buttons. The suit had no buttons. He looked like Dr. Evil. It was like Dr. Evil's suit. Um, I, I don't remember this, but in the draft diary, apparently Dewan Wagner hugged about nine women ranging from the ages of 19 to 88 when he got drafted. That sounded fun. Amar Stoudemire had a terrible giant suit on uh, that was just way too big and told Craig Sager, they called me a man among boys in high school. I'm about to play with the men where the men at. That which, in retrospect, we should have known. Maybe he was going to be good. The Clippers took two power forwards when they already had Elton Brand. That was fun. They had the 10 and 12, or the uh, 11 and 12 pick or something like that. And they took Melvin Eli and they took uh, Chris, Chris Wilcox. Yeah, 8 yeah. and 12 they had. The, the Wizards, run by Michael Jordan, took Juan Dixon 17th. House was hoping they could get him in the second round, so that was awkward. <laughs> we're, we're expecting that. It was basically, that. it was the functional equivalent of we have no idea who, who to take here. Let's just take the local kid. I mean, let's put right. some asses in seats. And then near the end of the draft, Kenny and Chuck, who were live mic this whole draft, and making jokes left and right. And they were making fun of the foreign influx and Stern goes up to the podium, stares them down and says, <laughs> you know, when Kenny and Charles first came into the league, they didn't speak English either. Jesus Christ. <laughs> wow. I don't know if that would have gone over well in 2020. <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> 2002. Great line. So all that happened. And then, uh, from the, we, Zach Cram does, Little Zacks for us from a fact standpoint. Yao Ming, first player picked number one overall from an international league. The only other one ever was Andre Bargnani. Could yeah. argue Luka Doncic should have been the uh, third one. Duke players picked second and third. Mike Dunleavy went third. Carlos Boozer picked 35th, had the best career of the three Duke guys. So that yeah. was unpredictable. Tishka Vili House. Career win shares. Want to guess? Want to guess his career win shares? I'm going to say minus, <laughs> minus six. Well, minus. I, I can't believe you went minus. I didn't even know you could go minus, but apparently you can because his career win shares are minus 1.6. Oh, okay. He literally has a negative impact. Uh, the only one worse was Josh Jackson at 1.9. So we'll see if he can if he can climb over the Tishkavili line of negative 1.6. <laughs> uh, 
We had four 2002 draftees made an all-star team, only one better than the uh, the 2000 Nadir. And then the best undrafted player in 2002. Care to guess? I, I know the answer, so I'll let Chris guess. The best undrafted guy? Ugh. He spent four years at his college, ended up with a ring. Still in the league until recently. Juan Carlos Navarro? No, good guess, though. Udonis Haslam. Oh, man. Weird, because he had big moments in college and was in big games in Florida. I have no idea why he just wasn't drafted. That's considering how many bad people he had. Other undrafted notables include Reggie Evans, Devin Brown, and Smush Parker. Smush. <laughs> the bane of Kobe's existence. I um, think it was the other okay. way around. So the actual draft, Houston had the first pick. And this is when they had uh, Francis and Mobley were there and pieces of something. Uh, Jay Williams went to Chicago second. Golden State took Mike Dunleavy third. Drew Good in fourth to Memphis. Tishkavili and uh, Nene ended up 5-7 to Denver. Cleveland took Dewan Wagner six. That was a tough one. The Clippers took... Chris Wilcox, 8th, and Melvin Eli, 10th. Amari and Karan Butler went 9 and 10 to Phoenix and Miami. House on the clock at 11. Jared Jeffries was the pick. Any thoughts on Jared? Or do you want to save him for later in the redraft? Well, I mean, we'll, we'll get there. But Michael Jordan basically drafted the two best players from the 2002 NCAA uh, championship game, historically regarded as one of the worst NCAA uh, championship games in history. <laughs> Might have been a mistake. And then he traded Rip Hamilton for Jerry Stackhouse. He did that too. Yeah, so you took uh, you Dixon and uh, Jeffries, 12 and 17. Milwaukee took a guy named Marcus Haslip. Yeah. Who my dad like immediately ridiculed the pick in the draft guide. I think he was right. Indiana was 14 with Fred Jones, who had like a cup of coffee during the Artest Melee season. He was kind of like a heat check guy for a second. And then it just gets dark for a long time. And then finally Tayshawn Prince goes 23rd, John Salmon's 26, uh, Carlos Boozer 35th, Juan Carlos Navarro to house's whiz at 40, Matt Barnes at 46. And that's all she wrote. All right. It's time. I for guess the Lu Luis Scola at 56 is worth noting, right? Oh, yeah, I missed that one. Good point. Yeah. You come at the king, best not miss. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jamel Hill. And I'm Van Layton. We're proud to introduce our new podcast, The Wire, Way Down in the Hole. We're going to recap, break down, and analyze every episode of the iconic HBO hit series, The Wire, starting from the beginning with season one, first episodes hit you on April 15th. Now, every podcast episode will include recaps, signature moments, foreshadowing, key character deep dives, little known facts, and also awards such as We Love This Show But, the Stringer Bell Fuckboy Award, my personal favorite, who won the episode, and more. So subscribe to The Wire Way Down in the Hole on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you in West Baltimore on April 15th. It's time for the redraft. I'm going to give Chris Ryan the first pick. 
I'm going to have House second pick. I'll take the third pick. We'll draft 15 so we can each go five times. Okay. Chris Wright, uh, you're on the clock. The 2002 NBA redraftables redraft. Here we go. Kind of a fascinating what if just because of who Houston was at the time, but I'm going to obviously go with Stoudemire. Uh, it's probably the, the, the best player out of this draft, I would say. And uh, even though his career as well was also cut short by injury in some ways and, and never quite reached his full potential. I think that the, the highs on Amari, the ceiling was, was incredible and kind of would have been fascinating to see him with that first iteration of that Rockets team when it was Catino and, and Francis. Yeah, that's a good point. It's too bad. So I think he would yeah. have been really excited there. there. Trying to think what the right team Yao could have been on where it just could have been like a slowdown. Every game was 84 to 80 and what type of players should have been around him. It, that, I, I, I feel bad for T-Mac because I think T-Mac just had such bad luck during that eight years with just who was on his team. And if he had, you know, I, it would have been hard, but if he had just gone with like Steve Nash on the Suns for a couple years, or I just would have loved to have seen him unleashed. I feel like it never properly happened. Couple of Mari facts from 2004 through 2011 23 and 9, 54% field goal. 2005 through 2010 playoffs, which is 46 games, he was a 26 and 9 which is like legit when you're 26 and over as, and you're shooting 53% ridiculous made a first team all NBA as a center, which was a little shaky, but they was yeah. playing center. What can you do Four second team all NBAs and came close to being, you know, making the finals a couple of times, most notably in 2010, where I thought he was the best player in that team. Uh, Nate was a little bit older. Nash, he was a little more of the facilitator, and uh, they came within Jason Richardson forgetting to box out run our test, I think, of <laughs> potentially making the finals that year. House, any other Mara Stoudemire thoughts? No, just, uh, you know, I wish he hadn't gotten hurt. That's all. I think he has become an underrated. Him and Gilbert Arenas, I think, from that decade are probably the two most underrated. And we talk about the Hall of Fame guys and who might make it and whether is Antoine Jameson a Hall of Famer and what like what's the cutoff line. I would be fine with Amari making the Hall of Fame. I, f I feel like his peak was as good as anybody's. Uh, he was a really breathtaking offensive player. He was going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Duncan and Garnett, Weber, all those guys, and he got hurt. He, he was he, top, Yeah, he was top 10 in the MVP voting four different times. Right. Like, he was in the top, you know, he was a top 10 best player in the league. Who would you have rather had, Chris Webber or Amari Stoudemire? If you could huh. just have either career on your team. That's fascinating. Um, Amari. I would go Amari. I think I would go Amari too. And I think Chris Webber was a Hall of Famer. More, more the Fab Five stuff, I think, helps him too. But, uh, but yeah, I think Amari will be a Hall of Famer at some point. He had a really weird... He get, goes to the Knicks. They don't use their amnesty tax on him. They don't save it for him in case his knees go wrong. They use it for Billups because they want to sign Tyson Chandler. They think they have a chance to win a title. And unfortunately for Amari, he becomes this like untradeable contract for the last three years of his Knicks career with the angriest, most disgruntled fans. And that kind of colored, I think, how people remember the Phoenix parts of it. I thought him 
him and Nash running that high screen thing was was borderline revolutionary. I and I think a lot of basketball is copied just what those two guys were doing. Uh, number two pick, Joe House, you're up. I'm taking Yao Ming, and I'm not okay. hesitating. I have no reservations about it. He was, uh, you know, we we covered a bunch of him at the very top. In addition to the global impact um, he carried along uh, and the benefits that the league received, he's eight-time All-Star, five-time All-NBA. He, on a per-48-minute basis, if you want to get a little advanced stats about it, he had he was at 0.2 win shares, which is the best of anybody else, best of anybody in this draft. Stoudemire was second at 0.169 per 48 minutes win share. Mm. So you know, a little advanced House, stat. House using advanced stats. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's just, just you're looking for both eye test and and the uh, behind the scenes measurements of the impact of a guy. He's one of only 15 players in history to have uh, 9.2 rebounds and 1.9 blocks uh, to go along with, you know, over 20 points a, a game. Like, he was super impactful. He's just a giant guy who couldn't sustain it. And that's the story of this draft. The fact that Yao is still the number two pick in a redraft tells you everything you need to know about the O2 draft. I mean, do he you disagree? He basically plays seven years. He plays less than 500 career games. And he only won one playoff series. And yet I agree with you. I think okay, he's good. the second pick. <laughs> uh, 2006, 7, 8, he was 23 and 10. Career 23 PER. And from a comedy standpoint, I know I got a lot of mileage out of Yao Ming translation comedy because Yao would say whatever he was saying in Chinese and then the translator would translate it and you it, and it could have been it y'all could have said anything in his language you just wouldn't have known he could have been like i fucking hate tracy mcgrady he doesn't pass to me enough and the translator would be like i really value my relationship with tracy he's been an incredible teammate i got a lot of mileage out of that in columns in the uh mid-2000s all right i'm third i'm taking the best chest hair available <laughs> carlos boozer <laughs> That's where all the hair went. From 2004 to 2013, 18 and 10, 53%. 20-13 in the playoffs for the Jazz from 07 through 2010. They won six playoff series in four years. They made the conference finals. Listen, there's never going to be a documentary about the late 2000s Utah Jazz, but they were formidable. They were like the... You know, a little bit like actually what they're like now, where you're like, I know they can't win the title, but we have to take them seriously. He was the second best player in all those teams. One third team All-NBA in 2008 and two All-Stars. And became a free agent twice who got paid. The first time, how did he get paid, House? By stabbing a blind guy in the back. <laughs> <laughs> and from a karma standpoint, never, uh, never really recovered. One of the crazier stories that I think would have been such a bigger deal if the NBA was the the social media era was in place 15 years later, but basically they they exercised this option to make them a restricted free agent so they can then take care of them. It's a wink wink. Teams do it all the time. Once they do that, Utah comes in with a huge restricted offer and they fucking take them and he leaves. And 
Gordon Gunn, who by all accounts was a benevolent, awesome blind man, who, who <laughs> all he did was love the Cavs and do stuff for the blind blind community and was an amazing guy. And Boozer was just like, I'll, I'll see you later and fucking wham the knife in his back. And even weirder, left LeBron. That was the part that was underrated to me. Like he was playing with somebody who would end up being one of the three best players ever. He's like, I'll see you later. I'm going to Utah. Yeah. Uh, it, Chris, it was that, that's a money. much bigger deal now. Oh, it would be, it, we would, there would be like five NBA desktops about that. <laughs> it, it was How, double the money though. I mean, uh, the real uh, un, underrated character to this whole thing was his agent. And you, you know who it, is, who it was? Wasn't it Palenka? Yeah, Rob Palenka, <laughs> yeah. general manager of the Los Angeles Lakers. That's right. That's right. Yeah, he and that and most of the venom I think was saved for Palenka. Boozer, I was kind of liked his game, and but it was a game that belonged to that era. I think if we did yeah. what's age the best, what's age the worst, like his game in 2020, I I don't know what it, what you would really do with it. But back then, you know, you could. You could post him up. You could run a little pick and pops with him. He was really physical. He was good on putbacks. He was feisty. He was good at the whole making a basket and then doing like the the steroids. He kind of scream. Yeah, the, ah! the chest pan. Yeah, there, there's yeah. a terrific uh, clip on of him punching Danny Crawford in the nuts, celebrating <laughs> in just the way you're describing. It's easy to right. find. Just look up uh, uh, Carlos Boozer nut shot. You can see him punch Danny Crawford. And then he goes to the Bulls in 2010 after they miss out on all all the big guys, including Wade and Bosch. And Boozer becomes the kind of consolation prize. It was okay there for a couple of years. And then, you know, I think the league changed on and probably lost a little athleticism. But um, Chris, not a lot of Carlos Boozer conversations for you the last five years. No, I mean, like you said, like uh, not only was he a kind of dull player, but it's a guy who's brand of basketball is like doesn't even make an NBA roster anymore. That sort of power forward, 13, 14 points a night, seven to 10 boards a night. It's just, it's just kind of like a box score. You don't really see that much anymore. It's like he would have to be, and and he, he and the guy who I'm going to pick, I guess the version of him now would be Montrez Harrell or something like that. You'd need that kind of player to be a super battery in the back energy guy who makes a lot of defensive uh, interruptions for him to be worth it. Can we talk about when he uh, did the hairline thing that time? I mean, I've considered it. Uh, Would you, you watch know, a documentary or a documentary short about the night Carlos Boozer decided to paint in hair? Why aren't we doing a Tiger King about it? Like, why can't we do like a full eight episode Netflix true crime about, about it? It was like he didn't understand that Twitter was already like really fully going at that point. Like you could do that. And, you know, Rick Barry played with a fucking wig on in 1976. He had like an actual wig. Uh, Carlos Boozer painted on his hair and he was like, I want pretty sure nobody will notice. Like, <laughs> no, everyone's going to notice. This is going to be a huge deal. That was insane. I still no, can't believe we did that. The story, I, I did a little deep dive on this because his hair, his chest hair and his actual hair are much more interesting to me than this draft. He claims that he was going to start growing out his hair, but he knew he had bald spots and that those bald spots weren't going to fill in. So he thought the, the, the process was, if I can just 
do some kind of overall coverage and it all comes in at once, at once it won't look dramatically out of place. He did not understand or appreciate the product that he was applying and that it effect, effectively had the sheen of a shoe shine. He applied a shoe shine to his head. I don't understand the end game for Carlos there. Was he going to go and try and give himself like a Val Kilmer pompadour or something? Like what was, what would be the point where he had enough hair to style it in like a wild part? Like, I don't understand what he was thinking. I, I can't help you with that. <laughs> How about just shave your head, Carlos? <laughs> Seems like just stick with it. It worked. Were you pro or anti Carlos Boozer Chester? Me? Just in general, the look like Chest hair, really not a huge staple of the NBA. No, it's not. And Carlos I, I was like, I'm about making that. it a staple. Yeah, uh, I was, I, I was, I was, I was pro because in retrospect, it has a kind of like 70s porn star vibe to it. A real virility. He was a, 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 a viral player, a virile player. I got to be honest. I, I think he was a net positive. <laughs> like he brought some comedy. He, he won some games. I, he could have made a case for him. Yeah. I think house made the right pick at number two, but, uh, you could have made a case for him. I'm looking at, at for number two, I'm looking at the, uh, 2008. He goes against the Lakers in the playoffs and he goes 15 and 14, 10 and five, 27, 20, 14, 12, 18, 12, <coughs> 12 and 14 in a six game loss against a pretty big front line. But that the big one was Oh seven. They make the Western finals. They beat the true believe warriors. They break out me and house's heart in that series, five games against the warriors. He goes 24 and 14. Remember that? Oh, wow. He destroyed the Warriors. They were trying to go small on him, and he he, he really killed them. And then next round, against Tim Duncan, that wasn't working. But I don't know. I thought he had a pretty good career. All right, uh, Chris, you're on the clock at four. I'm going to go Nene. Uh, You know, obviously, like, I think that his longevity almost goes against him in an exercise like this because for a lot of people, their most recent memories are him kind of coming off like a, probably like a torn labrum or something and playing 25 games for their, their team at some point, but he was a bad motherfucker for a while, man. And, uh, also like a really had a a real intimidating X factor, like clearly was not, was not really like thrown off his square by any of the guys he went up against. And especially for those Denver teams towards the end of the first decade of the two thousands, I thought he was a really, he was pretty sick. He, uh, Starting center on a team that almost made the finals in 09. Yeah. 2-2 against the Lakers. And uh, they kind of blew it. I blame George Carl. Blame a little Chauncey Billups for that. Um, but he, you know, he was in the middle. He also made $133 million. I looked that up. <laughs> he was around for a long time. Zach yeah. Lowe wrote a kind of a, a tribute column about him during his time in Washington. Did a little bit um, on the underrated uh, basketball IQ of, of Nene. And I, I really enjoyed it. My, he, he was very good for Washington. He delivered a level of professionalism. He helped those teams. You know, they didn't go anywhere in the playoffs, but he helped those uh, young kids sort of see what it's like for a guy who, who plays hard when he can be on the court. My only knock on Nene 
In the fourth quarter, he loved to miss one of two free throws. He was nene one of two. That son of a bitch. He could never make two free throws when we needed them in the fourth quarter. Yeah, he was basically uh, a career 66% three-point shooter, but that that seemed to tail off as it went along. He, uh, I remember being surprised that House liked him that much when he was on the Wizards. So I just felt, felt like House was a discerning audience, much like myself. You almost had to win me over. You have to win House over. And I thought when Nene went there, I was just like, oh, this would be funny. House would just complain about Nene. And it was kind of the opposite. You were, you enjoyed him. Well, you because, him. you know, very competent, the, the trade, right. And, and, the, and the trade was, uh, McGee, JaVale McGee, the failed experiment of JaVale McGee, the wizards drafted him. He couldn't get out of his own clown way for the first portion of his career. Of course, he was surrounded by Nick Young and Andre Blotch. So he didn't really have much of a chance, JaVale, yeah. um, to get out of his own way. But you know, what Nene versus JaVale, early JaVale, it, it was, you know, you, you, you can understand why I appreciated him. Yeah, Nene, there's a four-year stretch from 09 to 2012 where he shoots 59%. And there's a reason, like, near the end of his career, Daryl Morris snapped him up and was like, I just got to give this guy a test drive because he was kind of like the perfect advanced metrics-y seemingly mediocre center who didn't hurt you. Yeah. I'm not against that pick house. You're up at five. I'm going with my man, tough juice. It's Karan yeah. Butler. I'm so happy yeah. that he fell to me. Um, I think, uh, honestly the best offensive perimeter player in this draft, um, you know, the tough juice, uh, nickname was, was well-deserved always uh, up to the challenge. Um, in, in terms of like, not going to get pushed around. He uh, had four seasons with at least 15 points, two and a half assists, one and a half steals. Nobody else in this draft class matched that stat line. So, you know, he's bringing it on, on, on both ends. Great teammate. He was never a first banana. He couldn't be a first banana. But, you know, you put him with uh, Gilbert Arenas and Antoine Jameson for, a, for about a half a season that was a super highlight for me as a Washington fan. I, I have nothing but respect and love for Karan. So, um, I forgot what I was going to say. No, now I remember it. Um, a little bit of a three and D guy right nowadays, but, but like, I would say a, a rich man's version of that, but the Clippers tried to basically turn him into a three and D guy when they got him. When you talked about being a beloved teammate, I remember when Chris Paul was going to the Clippers, the Karam Butler thing was like one of the carrots. Cause like, yeah. for whatever reason around the league, everyone loved, uh, Karam Butler. He was, been, he was involved in a couple interesting trades. So I mentioned the one, him, Brian Grant's contract, Lamar Odom in a first for Shaq. That happens a year later, traded with Chucky Atkins to Washington for Kwame Brown and Leron profit. If he stays on that Laker team and it's him, Odom and Kobe, that's actually like a pretty nice. Yeah. I think if he had been the third best guy, I Kobe, that middle of the decade where Kobe's basically wasted, he's only in, you know, he, he wins a total of three playoff games in three years. I think that would help from that. And then house, tell me how you feel about this trade. All these years later, February, 2010, Karan Butler, Brendan Hayward, and Deshaun Stevenson to Dallas for Drew Gooden, 
Josh Howard, Quentin Ross, and James Singleton. Would you do that one over again? This this is, look, you, you recall what happened in January of 2010. New Year's Day, 2010. It was finger guns. It was the gun in the in the locker room moment, and they tore that whole team down. They yeah. they did a series of trades and got rid of everybody. And then the thing that I always felt really bad for Butler about was that I loved him on that Mavs team, and he winds up blowing his knee out before their their title run. Right, right, good point. And he was he was really like an essential part of that team. I, I that was such like a. That was also just a great, great burgeoning moment of NBA Twitter, that 11 team of like people starting to really kind of like basically be online all night watching basketball and talking about, you know, the the Mavs versus that Heath team. But um, that but like Butler on that team was always really fun. It was always a shame that he he didn't really get to fully embrace that that title run. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy that they won the title anyway because yeah. they basically had to replace him with Deshaun Stevenson and a little J.J. Barea, and, and he was supposed to be like the fourth or fifth best guy on the team. He had some bad luck with the Clips in 12 and 13, and then one last bad luck piece with OKC in 2014, which was a year that you could argue OKC could have won. That was Durant's MVP year, um, and he just never ended up getting the ring. Played from 03 to uh, 2016, though, so had a, had a long career. 881 games. Um, two, I had two other Karan Butler notes. 19 and 7 for five straight years on the Wizards. Loved them. Yeah. Two all-star teams. I don't really remember that. It must have been... Me, me I neither. Can't, can't, <laughs> can't figure out how that happened. All right, I'm on the clock. Number six... Take Sean Prince. Yeah, makes sense. Good pick. He made four second team all defenses. I don't understand why he didn't make more. I thought he was um the single best perimeter defender of of the middle of that decade. And yeah. um made the made an iconic play in that Indiana Detroit series. The block on Reggie Miller was really great. He was so good for Detroit that it didn't even matter that they fucked up the Carmelo Darko pick a year later because he was able to give them really good minutes. The thinking was, we don't need Carmelo Anthony. We have Tayshaun Prince. That was dumb thinking. I think they should have taken Carmelo. Or really, should have taken Bosch would have probably even been, if we knew then what we know now. Um, he played 140 playoff games. What a monster. I was kind of stunned by that. I'm stunned by it. He had a run with, uh, you know, he was on those Detroit teams. Year after year, those Detroit teams were playing like 25 playoff games, 18, 24. And uh, he's just, he put on a lot of miles, then ended up, had a nice little last run on Memphis. The other thing I forgot about him, he was a four-year guy at Kentucky. So he comes into the league. He's already like, you know, 22, 23. So I think that's why he was able to adjust. But um, I like that. he. I liked his long lefty game. I feel like he was this generation's Derek McKee where the, the, the production never added up to how talented it seemed like he was. And it always seemed like his ceiling from quarter to quarter was a little higher than a typical guy who was just like the fifth best starter on a team. And there would be these moments where he could like 
you know, take over a game for a couple of possessions. Yeah. And defensively, I really, I really enjoyed him. Uh, any other Tayshawn Prince thoughts before we move on? No, I just, I just, re- just remembering him from that o- the the Pistons title team and just being like watching watching him play against the Lakers and just being like, holy crap, like this guy can guard anybody. He did a job on Kobe. I mean, it was yeah. multiple people, but he was the lion's share of it. And uh, and Kobe's stats that series are horrific. Whatever the year in the early 2000s that the All-Star game was in L.A., um, I came out and joined you, and we went to it, and uh, Tayshon was there just walking around. I couldn't believe how um, slight he was, and it really reinforced how smart he was like seeing him physically just a super skinny guy not even like he didn't even seem like that tall but it it emphasized his basketball IQ through the roof because of of you know um from what everything that we saw and the contributions that he made that was the all-star weekend when we went to a party on a Thursday night with a, a couple of my friends from the uh from Boston including our friend Sully and uh we decided to go to Mel's Diner at like 1230 at night in Hollywood. House had never been. And House ordered three entrees. And people were just confused. I was the only one who wasn't confused because I had eaten so many meals with House. It was just, House is like, I'll have the roast beef au jus. Au jus, au jus. Um, I'll have a ham and cheese omelet. And I'll have the shepherd's pie or whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> and can I put in two orders for the apple pie? And everybody was kind of looking like looking around to see more people were coming. And I was like, no, that's just for house. Do you remember that though? You went, you went to town at Mel's diner. It was great. I mean, I love diner food and especially you can go breakfast, you can go lunch and dinner. So I just went one of each. Do it, do it all. Yeah. House remembers more about 2004 Mel's diner than 95% <laughs> of the guys in this draft. Uh, Chris, you're on the clock at number seven. This is where we're yeah. just to warn uh warn the listeners, it's about to drop off. We're getting I, close. Get close to the cliff. Like I don't want you guys to get start yelling at me. So I feel like I should keep drafting along with like the the regular numbers here, but I'm starting to get I almost want to like blow this up. I guess I'll take Dunleavy. I you know, I mean he was a really good college player, so I I it's not I wasn't surprised that he got drafted as high as he did. But, you know, it was just like a 15-year staple of our lives of like, oh, huh, so the Pacers traded for Dunleavy, huh? Oh, Dunleavy signed a two-year deal with the Bulls. Oh, Dunleavy's here. It's like real journeyman career. He's now the assistant GM in Golden State, which I think is pretty interesting since that's the team that drafted him. But, yeah, the idea that Dunleavy was going to be like some plug-and-play franchise player for the Warriors back then is pretty, pretty wild to think about now. I think he would have been much better off coming into the league right now some of the stuff he could do. He was always a good three-point shooter. Um, he had a couple monster in 08 in Indiana. He was 19 points a game, 43% from three, almost five threes a game. Yeah. This is 08 when people weren't really playing that way. Career 38% three-point field goal percentage. The highest white guy taken in six years <laughs> since Keith Van Horn. <laughs> Got to mention that. Also involved in one of my favorite um, read between the lines trades about a year and a half after the Artest melee where Indiana traded Al Harrington, Steven Jackson, couple, uh, couple tiny contracts and got back Mike Dunleavy and, uh, Troy Murphy. They were just like, we're just, 
Can we bring in some white guys? Would that make you like basketball again, Indiana? Some white guys. Got some white guys for you, anybody? Uh, it was just such like a such a charged trade where Indiana's basically giving up the two best guys in the trade, Al Harrington and Steven Jackson. They were just so desperate to move on. That was weird. Don Levy also part of one of my favorite moments in the last five years of NBA history when Giannis Steve Atwatered him at the at the end of game in fifteen. Oh yeah, yeah, and that was like the real real dark Giannis glimpse that we got, and it was just like I thought Don Levy might have like broken it. He might have broken his collarbone. Like it was such an incredible hit in a basketball game. That was when I I realized Giannis had a chance to be great because he yeah, had a little yeah. bit of a dark side. <laughs> House, I can't wait to see who you're picking eighth. I'm taking Udonis Haslam, and I'm not even, you know, I'm not hesitating. There's, there's, you know, we're, we're ex- honestly, I think we should only do 12 picks in this draft because, like, what? No, nah, we're doing 15. Of- no. <laughs> I'm just saying, we're, no. we're officially in Luis Scola, Matt Barnes zone. So I, I'm taking Haslam. I'm confident that that's the right pick here. He uh, spent, 17 seasons, the active leader in seasons spent with the same team with Miami, obviously locker room leadership. He started 52 playoff games and he contributed 51 win shares, which in in this draft class, the eighth best mark for, for win shares. So I'm taking him right here. Chris, any regrets? Any regrets for not taking, uh, <laughs> not taking him? No. He had the 06 season when they win the title. He plays 29 and a half minutes a game. Putting up a nine, a nine and seven. And then in the uh, 2012 season, when they win the title, played 20 minutes a game. Got three rings. Beloved teammate. Beloved. Chris, Chris doesn't look at rings, wins, teammates. He just looks at stats. He's like, Mike Dunleavy had some good seasons. I'm taking him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're at the point in the the draft where Drew Gooden seems like a good pick. Because he is. He he averaged a 14-9 for the 2005 Cavs, which surprised me. He played 30 minutes a game for the 2007 Finals Cleveland Cavaliers. Put up an 11-8 was their best forward in a series where they beat the Wallace brothers and Antonio McDice, a team that had more size than them. Um, Here's the flip side. He played for 10 teams. Teams over and over again where he was an asset that teams were dying to get rid of over and over again. I sent you uh, a couple of the trades he was involved with just from 2004 to 2010. In 2004... Oh, I'm sorry, 2003, he was traded with Gordon Gearsek for Mike Miller in a first-round pick in 2003. So he was valued. He had more value than Mike Miller, who was really good. 2004, Memphis is like, I'm sorry, Orlando's like, uh, we're good with this guy. They send him with Stephen Hunter and Anderson Varejao to Cleveland for Tony Batie in two seconds. So it's basically a giveaway. Yeah. 2008. He's in a monster deal. This is one of the my favorite bad trades of all time. He's traded with Shannon Brown, Larry Hughes, and Cedric Simmons to Chicago. The Bulls trade Joe Smith, a semi-washed up Ben Wallace, and a second rounder to Cleveland. 
The Cavs traded a semi-washed up Daniel Marshall and Ira Nubel to Seattle. And then Seattle trades a semi-washed up Wally Serbiak and Delante West to Cleveland. It's a lot going on. That's a 30 for 30, that trade. Then, <laughs> 09, February trade deadline, traded with Andres Nocioni, Michael Ruffin, and Cedric Simmons to Sacramento for Brad Miller and John Salmons. And then a year later, traded with Josh Howard, Quentin Ross, and James Singleton for Karan Butler, Brandon Hayward, and Deshaun Stevenson. But no, four days later, traded again. <laughs> traded to the Clippers in a trade where the Cavaliers traded Zadrunas Algaskis and a 2010 first-rounder to the Wizards. The Clippers traded Sebastian Telfair to the Cavs and Al Thornton to the Wizards. The Wizards traded Antoine Jameson and the Cleveland Cavaliers. Yeah, Let's get first-round was- pick out of that. Some, I feel like I'm having an acid flashback hearing all those names. <laughs> I, it's quite possible that we could do a whole podcast about all the terrible trades Cleveland made during the LeBron era. If yeah. you take the two eras of LeBron, it's it's oh, it's there's 20 trades we could go through, and all of them are not that great, but with a lot of name guys who are uh, somehow expensive. So anyway, uh, at this point, I'm t- I'm taking him with the uh, ninth pick. Chris, you're on the clock at 10. Man. Uh, okay, on, at number 10, I really want to take Flip Murray here, but I'm going to go Luis Scola. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> Averaged a 17 and 8 from 2010 till uh, 2012. Also, um, a rare, terrible Spurs trade. Yeah. They had him in 07 and basically gave him away for a second rounder coming off a title team. That, uh, that, uh, I don't know, maybe would have kept Luis Scola. He was also in the, uh, all that, that first Chris Paul trade. Remember the vetoed yes. one? Yeah. What was it? Pau Gasol. Scola was going somewhere. Whatever. Chris Paul was going to Lakers. Chris Paul to Lakers. Yeah. I think Scola was going to New Orleans with Pau Gasol. Mm-hmm. I, I don't don't even remember. A lot of moving parts. But anyway, that happened. House, what were your thoughts on Luis Scola's hair versus uh Carlos Boozer's hair? Well, I mean, Luis Scola had the 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 perfect Euro hair for his era. I mean, he he really embodied the 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 Euro player. Even though he's not European. <laughs> even though he's from Argentina, yeah. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. I mean, you know. Also, had I was a little bit he, of that Michael Michael Douglas vibe of entered the league at forty. Just did, never looked like he was a young guy at all. I always thought he should have been in a movie, like in me and Chris's uh, the underrated two thousand six classic Miami Vice. I feel like he easily could have worked for uh, what was that guy's name? Oh, the, the guy who worked the for end? the for Gong Lee. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's right. He could have been at the table in that scene. All right, Luis Scola, who's next? House, you're up. I'm taking Matt Barnes. Uh, I don't. There are a bunch of, of of names jumping off the page of me. Otherwise, I'm looking at John Salmon. I'm looking at Ras, Rasul Butler. Um, like Matt Barnes, it took him a while to find his footing. Another guy who uh, landed with Don Nelson, and Don Nelson kind of changed his career because Don saw in him the possibility of kind of a, a combo forward, and he was perfectly suited for it. And you know his his toughness, his, his, his enforcer kind of mentality. He's not a huge guy, but he played bigger than his size. 
And, you know, it was like a league average three-point shooter. But there's anytime you can get a genuine tough guy, especially at this stage of the draft, good value getting a, a real tough guy. He played for nine teams. It, the, the, the well, five of, of them were at the beginning. He played in 95, <laughs> playoff, 95 playoff games. Uh, right. Yeah. They, he, he didn't, they, the league didn't know who he was going to be, and he didn't know who he was going to be. Five teams in his first four years. Can you name where he, where he got his ring? Ooh. I doubt Don't it. Don't look. Was it? It wasn't the Warriors, right? It was the 2017 Warriors. That's, that yeah. was gonna be, I was going to guess the Warriors also, yeah. but I, I was sure that was wrong. He was on the We Believe Warriors in 07, 11 and 6. 42% three-point shoot in the playoffs. He, was, he caught Orlando a year late. He caught the Lakers a year late right after mm -hmm. their three finals trips. Was... On the clips, basically for the peak, and probably that was his best chance in 14 yeah. or 15 for a ring. Goes to Memphis at 16, it's over, and then ends up on the Warriors and sneaks out. Guess what? Now he has an awesome podcast. Congrats on that. Real um, coin flip of a foxhole guy. Like, if you were in a foxhole with Matt Barnes, there's a 50% chance he saves your life and 50% chance he kills you. I, uh... <laughs> I wasn't a huge fan when he was on the clips because uh -huh. I felt like from a force of personality, it felt like he belonged out there in all the big moments. But he was also like he had that Marcus Banks-itis where it was like a minute and a half left down to you need a basket here. And it's like, no, 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 Matt Barnes. No, don't don't take the 25 footer. No, Marcus Please, no. Banks or Marcus Smart. Uh, Marcus Smart. Did I say Marcus All of the Marcuses. <laughs> yeah, any Marcus. <laughs> uh, all right, so I'm on the clock now? Yeah. You know, I'm going upside here. This is a redraft. We are in a time machine. There are real, no there are rules, but there really aren't. You could argue like, oh, do we, if, do, do I get the person that's going into the draft? Do I get everything that happens to him from that point on? Or do I get the potential that something might not have happened? I'm taking Jay Williams here. Great value at 12. Maybe yeah. in a redraft, maybe he doesn't buy a motorcycle. And maybe uh, and maybe I get somebody who's a future All-NBA player. I like him more than any of the guys left who actually had a career. It's so, not like he Jay had bad feet. It was a fluke accident. You know what yeah, I mean? Fluke like, accident. Yeah. So... Uh, I think talent standpoint, I got to take him. All right, Chris, you have 13th pick here. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, I think Tish I'm going and Wagner are still on the board. Dude, don't tempt me with Dewan Wagner. One of, <laughs> one of, one of the all time, like great Philadelphia area athletes. Um, God damn it. Are, are we talking Chris Wilcox here? Is that where we're really, we're really at? I guess Chris Wilcox. Wow. I mean, he wasn't on my board. Chris Wilcox? I mean, who are you? Who are we looking at? John Salmon? I, just, I mean, I had Clippers season tickets. I, I saw a lot of Chris Wilcox. <laughs> wasn't a huge fan. He had two seasons in Seattle where he was pretty good. I mean, there's plenty of guys here that I like more as players, but I, okay. I just don't know. Listen, you took him. You can't take it back. Chris Wilcox okay. off the board. I would have been a good GM in the in 2002. 
House is like House is looking at the stats. He's like, he had some two seasons in Seattle. They're pretty good. They were <laughs> awful. Those two guy. seasons. No, Our they guy. had. They, those were the two seasons that led to them getting Durant and Westbrook with top four picks. But he put up stats. All right, House, your fourteenth pick is um, Quintel Wood <laughs> still available? Yeah, wow. not so. It's not so easy, is it? No, it's it's terrible. There, I mean, it's, these are all just role player guys. Which stinky role player do I want? I'm gonna roll with um, Rasul Butler. Rest in peace. Um, you know, a, a slightly ahead of his time, maybe as a as a three and D guy, could really flourish in the in the league now. I, I can picture him sit, sitting in the corner and catching um, passes from the middle of the lane and nailing it every single time. Um, you know, he had a a, a, a decently uh, long career. I, I mean, at this this stage of it, you know, guys that could put the ball in in the basket. Um, you know, he averaged twenty four plus minutes three different seasons. Top seven three point total uh, uh, among this draft class. That's where we are in the draft. I, I like Rasul. He came to the Clippers and was not good. <laughs> it was one of those. He's a three and D guy, and then when you yeah. actually watched him play, the threes never went in. You're like, yeah. I thought it was, he's a missed three and D guy. <laughs> I had uh, I had John Salmons in that spot. Sure. So I'm Fine. happy that he fell to 15. Super excited about that. You know, I had him, <laughs> <laughs> I had him and the Ned Kristich on my board because the Ned Kristich. But you didn't have Chris Wilcox? No. Uh, <laughs> the Ned Kristich in the 2006 playoffs, 15 and 7 in 11 games. They won a that playoff series with them. John Salmons. Oh, God. In 09 and 2010, two-year stretch, 17 points a game, 40% from three. And got traded as the centerpiece in two deals. I think, uh, unfortunately, he was like leftover sushi in the fridge. If it was, if he stayed more than two days, you had to throw him out. But uh, he bounced around a lot. So apologies to Jared Jeffries, who I thought for sure House was going to take for the late pick, and uh, and Fred Jones. And that's really that's really it. What a draft, God! I gave. I mean, I gave Reggie Evans half a second of thought. Who are some of the guys that you thought the coming out puncher. of college in this draft that obviously never panned out? I still have a little bit of sentimental atta attachment to Frank Williams coming out of Illinois, like that Illinois team, the Bill Self team. Uh, so you're asking, you're asking, who have we still not given up on yet, even though yeah, this draft is I, long gone? I'm not, <laughs> I'm not convinced that Vincent Yarborough doesn't have a couple more miles on his tires. I, uh, my guy was Dan Gadzurich. Yeah. UCLA. I kept thinking he was going to have a moment as kind of that rim runner, offensive rebound guy. I remember wanting the Celtics to get him for a while. He had a couple, he had a couple cups of coffee on that Bucks team where he would like in 2005, he was like seven and five, man, we're really reaching for Dan Gadzurich content, but <laughs> um, I just always kind of thought he made sense as, oh, maybe he's in the right system. That guy could be something. I also really, that Flip Murray, that one stretch when he was averaging like 30 a game to start the season for, remember that? For like When he replaced weeks? Ray Allen, yeah. And it was like, what's happening here? He, he was, yeah, he was 12 a game that year. I still reference, it's like when guys go on, like some, when somebody like, uh, Shake Milton or KJ McDaniels goes on like a crazy run. It's I, the first person I think of is Flip Murray. So I'm looking at the start of the 2004 season. First 11 games of the season 
our guy Flip was averaging. This can't be possible. No, this is possible. This it, is the original insanity. It's an insane 20, number. 24 a game for the yes. first 11 games of the season. Yes. 39% from three. 18 field goal attempts a game. And even crazier, they were winning those games. They were seven and four in the first 11. People were like, Flip Murray, where'd he come from? I remember fantasy basketball that year. Like, he got picked up. People were riding him. Were we in a fantasy basketball league? We were, right? Together. And in fact... I had a as a partner our uh, mutual Holy Cross grad uh, Anthony Salcedo, and we named our team the Flip Murray All Stars. Wow! Because we did the draft after the season had already started, and you know I don't remember it was in the first handful of rounds, and we were like, "Well, this guy looks like he's kind of hot. Let's just take him now." Yeah. And, wow. And we and the room went crazy, um, deservedly so, and he did not maintain that pace. I. Kind of like Fred Jones for about a month. <laughs> Felt like he was something. Like it, it did feel like he had a rational confidence guy potential. Eddie House, who was your guy from this draft? Just any Maryland guy? Well, um, I saw a lot of Darius Songaya uh, when he was at Wake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I was an ACC guy. That was back when he there was really him. an ACC. Yeah. And I thought him. that he could be good. I thought he might be good. He was smart. He knew where to go. He's like a guy who knows where to be on the court at the right time. You left out the second part of that story when the Wizards actually got Darius Sangalia <laughs> and you were fired up. I mean, I, I remembered it. He's like, hey, I, this, this guy knows what he's doing. Good basketball IQ. Didn't work out as well. Well, the 2002 we did it, guys. <laughs> in the book. Amazing. That got dark. We, I, I took a guy who had a motorcycle accident after his first year with the 12th pick. <laughs> And I felt good about it. Uh, I didn't uh, even man. drink. I brought yeah. the gin. I didn't drink it. Sober house. All right. Uh, Chris Ryan, Joe House, thanks. You can listen to the 2003 Redraftables coming up this week with uh, Chad Ford. See you then. All right. Thanks for listening to the Book of Basketball 2.0 podcast. If you're waiting for the 2003 Redraftables, it will eventually show up on this feed. It might premiere on my podcast first with Chad Ford. And then after that, I don't know if this is the end of the series or not. We'll have to see. You, you guys got to tell me how bad you want it. Do you want more? Do you want us to do 2004? TheRinger.com slash WCK. Help us. Donate a couple bucks. It's easy. It's like three buttons. You're off. You go. You're done. Uh, stay safe. Listen to the doctors. Listen to the scientists. Listen to the experts. Talk to you soon.